Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs? Open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs and find your way to the 16th chapter in the book of Proverbs. In preparation for preaching the Word of God to the people of God today, I was drawn to this passage, Proverbs 16. In a moment, I will share with you why I was drawn to this particular section of the sacred text of the Bible, but first, let me give you some context to the book of Proverbs, and then I'll return to why we're in the book of Proverbs this Lord's Day. Now, Proverbs is an ancient book that goes back to the time of Solomon, the great king of Israel. In his lifetime, Solomon was known for wisdom. This book is a collection of wisdom sayings, most of them attributed to Solomon. And there's at least two other wise guys in the mix, Agur, who is referenced in chapter 30, and Lemuel, who is referenced in chapter 31. They lived during Hezekiah's lifetime. We read as well in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 23, about the sayings of the wise, quote-unquote. And in chapter 22, verse 17, we read the mention of the words of the wise. All of this to say, this book is a collection of, of wisdom sayings from various wise figures that have been brought together by the Holy Spirit, inspired into this collection of inerrant wisdom for God's people, Israel and the church. In the days of Israel, this book served as a, a training manual for the royal and priestly leaders. It was for the people to enjoy as well, not just for the priests and the leaders, but for the whole community of Israel to make them whole and to make them wise. While the book can be read like a bunch of disjointed one-liners and two-liners organized into various chapters as we have it today, it is, it is actually a book to be taken as a whole and to be read in large chunks which together give the student of God insight into what it is to, to flourish as a human. It is a book that is given to God's people so that we would have human flourishing over human foolishness. Throughout the book, there is that contrast of flourishing versus foolishness. Proverbs teaches us how to live in a way that is holistic, how to live in a way that we would flourish, how to live in a way that isn't only wise, but is loving and humble and intelligent. Considering or concerning intelligence, it is, it is uh, worthwhile to note my PowerPoint clicker is not working. Uh, if we could do something about it. I've been clicking it for like five minutes here. But, um, hey, inside problems, right? <laughs> concerning intelligence, it is, it, it is worth noting that there's a contrast between intellect or knowledge and, and wisdom that is important for us as we come to the text this morning. It is worth noting that the knowledgeable, that is, those of great intellect, are not necessarily wise. You see, wisdom and knowledge are distinct things. Knowledge is the personal possession of, of facts and data. To, to have knowledge is to possess information. It comes through study, through research, through investigation, observation, and experience. Knowledge does. Whereas wisdom is its own kind of knowledge. It is knowing how to apply knowledge in such a way that one's life is flourishing, both practically and as well in purity. A flourishing that, that is dealing with our, our purity before God and our practical living out of our lives. So in short, knowledge is knowing what, and wisdom is knowing how. How to live well, right? 
how to live well. That, that, that's wisdom. That's what this book is all about. It has been said that knowledge, to contrast it with wisdom, it has been said that knowledge comes from learning, whereas wisdom comes from living. Immanuel Kant uh, is attributed with saying, and I quote, science is organized knowledge, wisdom is organized life. The book of Proverbs wants us to experience life and to experience life to the fullest as God has ordered and ordained it. The sacred section of scripture that you have before you aims to equip you to live life well. This divinely inspired information that has come from God to us is before us this morning and, and it has been my prayer all week that as we feast in this section of scripture that God would give us not only knowledge but wisdom for life. Now, this brings me to the reason why we're in this text this morning. Uh, pastorally, I have sensed a need to stand before the church uh, this day, on this very day, on this first uh, opening of the building, to point us to a fundamental key for wisdom in this life. The fundamental key that I'm speaking of is the recognition that our lives are in God's hands. The book of Proverbs is a book that reiterates over and over, God is in control, God is in control, God is in control. You, you want to be marked by wisdom, you have to come to that reality that God is in control. And pastorally, I sensed a need to stand before the church this morning and to point us to that very thing, that God is in control, to point us to providence. It has been over a year since we have been able to worship inside of this building, and, and today is our first day inside. It should go without saying that the church is not a building. The church is a people. Hence, we are not speaking of the church reopening. We're just talking about a building reopening, because the church has been open all this time. We have been ministering, gathering as a local church throughout the pandemic, honoring our government, and above all, honoring God in our love, our worship, and our obedience. God has been so faithful working through the obedience of saints and the love of saints as we have been coming together in worship. Indeed, being outside has been a wonderful experience, stretching us, sanctifying us, and reminding us of the essentials of worship, as well giving us something to be thankful for today, opening our eyes to see some things that maybe we have corporately taken for granted. I don't know about you, but before all of this happened, it was really easy to Maybe look at the building and see some of the cracks or where we needed paint and see some of the flaws and, and, and you know, we've got a building campaign going and, you know, before all this pandemic to think about the building campaign and things that we want to do and, uh, you know, maybe looking at it and thinking, oh, why aren't we there yet or what's going on with this and all those things that we take for granted that we've been taught in this crazy year that we've experienced. And it brings us to the place that we are at right now, where we can come and we can gather and we can say to the Lord, Lord, forgive us for the things that we have taken for granted. Lord, we thank you for the resource of this building. We, we thank you, Lord, uh, even more profoundly that the church is not a building. And so that we as a church, we can gather here today inside of this building. And like any Sunday, we have come here to hear God's word exposited, his gospel proclaimed to draw us in repentance and faith, to bring us in celebration of the Lord's table, communion. As well, we have come seeking the Lord for His grace uh, uh, for us in the room. Lord, give grace to those of us who have gathered here today. Give grace especially to those who have lost loved ones with COVID and experienced heavy losses. 
It was about a, a week ago today, actually, our, our first reopening of the building was uh, uh, a week ago from yesterday. We, we had our, our first indoor funeral service for, for a family in our church who lost uh, a, a loved one to COVID in January, in January. And, and, and they had been waiting, you know, for the time so that they, they could be able to gather and, and, and things reopen. And so thank God we were able to have, have this family and, and able to come together and to see this family just kind of reopening a wound of loss from January and to come before the Word of God in this place. It's such an honor to stand before them. We were in the book of Psalms. We were in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And thinking about how God's in control of all of this. So we come today to seek the Lord for His grace on those who have experienced great losses. We've, we, we've come to seek the Lord that He would move am, among us. And we have come with the Word of God open. You have Proverbs open. And, and, and I've come to point you to Proverbs so that I can point you to Providence. The title of my message this morning is Control, COVID, and Confidence. As our lives begin to get back to the so-called new normal, we don't want to forget all that we have experienced was in God's hands. It, it was all in God's hands. It all came through God's filter, the filter of His sovereignty. Every loss, every gain, every tear, every smile, it was all under the careful control of the providential Lord of creation. As St. Job acknowledged in that famous line in Job 1.21, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now hearing that God is in control when we're inside of an air-conditioned building, hearing that God is in control when things are good, that's really not controversial, is it? Yeah, sure, God is good. Look, things are going good. He's good. Things are good. Good, good. However, when things are bad, then the controversy stirs within our hearts. And it clouds our eyes from seeing the good work through the mess and the stress. In fact, some get so clouded that they'll even begin to deny that God is there. Not just that God is in control, they'll, they'll in fact begin to deny that even God exists. The lack of control brings them to the place where they, they, they deny not just divine control, but the divine. They, they not just deny, but they'll even begin to attack. They'll use the so-called problem of evil and say, well, look at all the evil in the world. Look at the mess. Look at the stress. How can there be a God who is all-powerful and all-good? Because if he's all-powerful, he would stop it. And if he was all-good, he would certainly stop it. So maybe there is no God. Now, the skeptic isn't being honest because there are logical and intellectual reasons for the question of theosity that could be given. The, the, the reality is that the skeptic is assuming that evil will never be dealt with. Yeah, look at the mess, look at the stress, look at the evil. Now look at the good God who is all-powerful. Surely, he is going to do something about it. Maybe not on your timeline, maybe not in your way, but that doesn't mean that he is not real. Now I've asked you to turn to Proverbs 16. It is a text that shows us the reality of God. Not just his reality, but it calls us to respond to his reality, not with skepticism, but with openness and, and surrender and, and trust. As we see a passage that's going to teach us about how meticulously God is in control of all things. This passage, in fact, contains one of the most popular verses in the Bible for reflecting on God's meticulous control of creation. And, and that's what drove me to this text. 
After this year that we've had, after being outside, after all the things that we've gone through, I thought, what, what, what would be the message for the day? It is, it is a message to say, God, you're in control of it all. That's what we need to hear. So I'm going to take you to perhaps one of the most popular verses in all of the Bible that concerns the providence of God, that concerns the control of God. Draw your eyes now to verse 33 of Proverbs 16. It says, the lot is cast into the lap. The lot is cast into the lap. A lot is like, is dice. It's the equivalent of dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Just, just let, let this verse sink in. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Picture modern dice. You know those small throwable objects that are, have marked size and they can sort of land in multiple positions producing, you know, a number? They are used for generating random numbers. But Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 lets us definitively know that they're actually not random at all. They're only random for finite mortals, but not for the infinite, immortal God of creation. You see, the dice, when you roll the dice... When you draw the straw, when you pick a number from 1 to 10, when you guess which hand it's in, the outcome belongs to the Lord of creation, and his creation operates according to his plan. You could say that the dice are rigged, and you'd be speaking theological truth. And if you hear that the dice are rigged and that troubles you, let me remind you, who better to rig the dice than the God of creation? The all-loving, all-good God of creation, he's in control of the dice. How hopeless would our existence be if fatalism were true? Blind forces determining the outcome of things outside of anyone's control, just randomly bouncing around the universe. Likewise, how hopeless would it, would it be if the outcome were all on me and you, human forces, fighting for control? Thankfully, there is a truth that rescues us from such hopeless options, and this truth is that God is in control. Even what we might think is random, like, like dice, the role is under his control. Now, as our city transitions from COVID quarantines into whatever new normals are going to come, we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of who is in control. We need to surrender to the one who is in control. As we look back on how the year went, as we... Uh, are reflecting back on things, we need to be reminded of who was in control of everything that, that has already taken place and everything that stands in front of us. We need to be reminded of the one who's in control of all of that as well. Ultimately, it wasn't the control of the virus that made things pan out the way they, that it was. It wasn't the government lockdowns that were in control. It wasn't Fauci's decisions about, uh, about things that were in control, whether you think them reasonable or reckless. He was not in control. It wasn't the election, whether or not you think it was stolen or you think it was fair. That wasn't in control. The, the things in the news that took place this week as you watch them and you go, oh, I can't believe that happened or I can't believe that decision was made or I can't believe so-and-so did such and such. The outcomes did not escape God's control. The deliriousness, the dividedness, the darkness of our, of our culture, it has sadly crept into churches and I submit that it is largely due to a failure to recognize the reality of the verse before us that God is in control of all things. 
I fear that far too many pay lip service to this truth. Yeah, yeah, God's in control. Yeah, he's providential. You know, I'm, I'm a Calvinist. Of course I believe that. But their actions and their attitudes, dare I say their social media and the things they click and like, betray that stated belief. Perhaps it is just an intellectual belief. It's just something in their head. God's in control. Yeah, I believe, I believe God's in control. Yeah, providence, sovereignty, he's in control. Yeah, check. But it's just in the head. It's just an intellectual belief. It's like we read inside of the scripture with regard to demons. The demons believe in God. But do they really believe in God? Well, they believe in him intellectually. They know he exists, certainly. It's just head knowledge. It's not in the heart, however. Do we really believe in our hearts that God was in control of 2019 and 2020 and 2021? Do we really believe that? And does that belief then draw us in joy and love and service and worship? Or has sin entangled us in such a way that it could be robbing us from fully being transformed by the truth that God is in control? And it's just rattling around in our heads, but it hasn't permeated into our hearts. Sin and the desire to control things will keep us from it. I don't know about you, but I like to be in control of things, right? I don't like it when, you know, uh, I, I don't know, I, I'm thinking of something. Just recently, I opened a Pellegrino, and it just decided to explode in my face. I don't like that. That's not what I thought was going to happen. I like to control. I like to be in control of things. I, like, I prefer to drive the car than to sit in the passenger seat. There is a, a tendency within us to want to have this kind of control and and when we don't have control, then we get anxious. And when we have anxiousness, we can even turn to attacking and, and attacking the things that we perceive to be threatening our, our control. And ultimately, our control is about our comfort because I wanted to drink that. I didn't want it all in my eyeballs for Pete's sake. And, and I feel comforted when I get to drink that or do that or sit down or whatever it is. Control and comfort, they sort of dance together that way. We do what we do because that's what we want. It's what makes us comfortable. And so we try to control to get what comforts us. And then we blame others when things don't work out the way that we wanted. Now, the book of Proverbs exposes this way of living. It exposes this quest that we all wrestle with, seeking to have control and putting our comfort before others. It exposes and then it proposes in its place a way of wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord and saying, Lord, you're, you control all of this stuff. This book offers an invitation to us to trade self and exchange self with the sovereign, to embrace discomfort over comfort, to serve rather than to receive, to bow down and confess, you, Lord, are in total control. Have your way with me, Lord. And all, all, all that, I, that, that, that I can, it, it, you know, it, it just seems to be, as, as I'm trying to make sense of things, and all that I can do is just kind of see things don't seem to be in control, but Lord, give me eyes to see that it's actually all in control. The dice are rigged. Nothing is random. I want to taste and I want, to, I want to feel that. I want to be transformed by that. Now, verse 33 didn't fall out of the sky, right? There's, there's, there's 32 verses that come before it. 
So, so let's read the whole chunk as it, as it was given by the Spirit of the living God. And let's, let's come into the text. And let's seek to see the Spirit move and animate this text. So that this line of God being in control and the theology that after we read, I'll give you guys a little bit more theology and then I'll exposit the text so that, that God works through all of this. That we leave this room different than when we entered it. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. But loving kindness and, and, and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of his bag are his concern. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts. For a throne is established on righteousness. Righteous lips are, in, are the delight of the king, and he who speaks right is loved. The fury of a king is like the messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. In the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like the cloud with a spring rain. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen above silver. The highway of the upright is to depart evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to, hum to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who gives attention to the word will find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. And the wise in heart will, will, will be called understanding, and the sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Understanding is a fountain of life to the one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A worker's appetite works for him, but his hunger urges him on. A worthless man digs up evil, while his words are like a scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife. A slanderer separates intimate friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. He who winks his eye does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. A lot is cast in the lap but every decision is from the Lord. There's a lot going on in there, right? Passage is filled with themes that are very important themes for human flourishing. Contrasted that with human foolishness. There's these themes, themes that are timely for us in this time of distress and damage post-pandemic. Not to mention the other political and social and racial and economic and practical and relational and maybe even physical in our bodies that we have went through in the past year. And let's make sure that we get personal up front with the text and we admit 
to God now, having read the word and having it fresh before us, that we admit to God now and we pledge ourselves to God now, oh God, we will self-reflect on this text this morning. We will seek repentance this morning. We, we will draw our eyes on ourselves this morning. Lord, open our eyes to see ourselves in the text. May, may the text be a mirror for us this morning. It's not the news, it's not the quarantines, it's not the politicians, it's not the authorities, it's not the media. It's just you and God. It's His Word. Let Him speak. Let Him open you up. Let Him do business with you this morning. May we be like the psalmist in Psalm 51 who cried out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renewal, cleansing, comes by the Spirit at work through the ministry of the Word. And so we have the Word before us today. The sacred Word has been read. It hangs before us. We have sung. We have prayed. Brothers and sisters, look around and see the wondrous mystery of the church inside of this room. The wondrous mystery of the Spirit who works through the Word to change us deep within. To move something from the head into the heart to, to draw us to the gospel that I, I will keep pounding this morning as I do any time I stand before you, to draw us in this gospel to repentance and faith. Later, as we come to the communion table, as we picture our Lord, that we would be being transformed deep within. This chapter begins and ends with telling us God is in control. Proverbs 16 is kind of like, a, like a, a sandwich, if you will. It starts by saying... Man does this, he's not in control, God's in control, and it ends with a, a strong statement with this picture of the dice and saying God is in control. So, so it, it's sort of a, chap, it's a chapter sandwiched. And you've got these two pieces of bread that are about the meticulous management of God over his material world. And then in between, in between this, you've got all these things about life and uh, you know, uh, virtue and relationships, and there's, there's some stuff about the government in there. It's all, it's all really interesting. Now, I'm going to exposit some of the meat in the middle, but before I do, it's important that I make sure we understand the pieces of bread that have sandwiched the text, and that requires us to put on our thinking caps a little bit, and let's do a little bit of theology, a little bit of theology, and then I'll move into some exposition. I want to make sure we understand the sourdough or the wheat, or rye, or whatever you like. I want to make sure you understand that part, and then we'll get into whatever delicious things you want on the inside. Just don't let it be Subway tuna, because apparently it's not tuna. <laughs> uh, I'll make sure I'll give you the real tuna this morning. So I want to offer some exposition, but I want to do a little quick theology here on the control of God, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. That said, sovereignty, providence, control, I'm using these all interchangeably to talk about God being in control. Now, with that said, let's think about this word providence as I'm using it. And let's turn to the great theologian Gerhardus Voss, who in his classic work, Reformed Dogmatics, asks this question, and I'll put it in front of you, what is providence? He asks, what is providence? And then he answers. He's written this series of texts uh, in a Q&A sort of catechal format. It's a very helpful read. What is providence? And the answer is the eternal work of God by which God causes the created universe, as far as its substance is concerned, to continue to exist. Concerning his power, he, he causes it to operate, and concerning its operation, to reach the goal intended by him. 
God. Now, this is a technical way of unpacking the lot is in the lap. The dice are divinely rigged. Dr. Voss goes on to describe providence as the execution of the decree of God. Now, think about that for a moment. The execution of the decree of God. Think about the word decree. A decree isn't just any old decision that a man or a woman makes. A decree is a binding decision that is made by someone in authority over another, someone who is in charge. That's what I decree you to clean your room, children. Right? I decree. Uh, I saw a meme about uh, pastor's kids make up 27% of uh, pastor's illustrations. I'll try not to do that, kids. But I decree, right, someone in authority over you makes a decree. So then thinking about providence, again, come, come back, come back, follow me here, right? It, 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 is, it, is, it is the execution of the decree of God. And God is executing it himself. Think, 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 okay, decree, authority, God is ordained. God says, this is what's going to happen, and he's making it happen. Think about the book of Genesis. God decrees, doesn't he? Let there be light, and it is so. Let there be land, and it is so. Let there be stars, let there be animals, let there be, and it is so. By the power of his word, he speaks, and it comes to pass. That is something that mortals can only dream of, right? Pellegrino, <laughs> Diet Coke, right? Bacon, like, I, I, don't, I can't do that. It is something, of course, that false religions promise. You can name it and claim it. You can gab it and grab it. Well, good luck with that. God alone has the power to perfectly execute his decrees, and that is why and how he is sovereign. Not to mention, he's infinite and immutable in his power and perfections. He's eternal and omniscient. Hence, his decree is secure. The dice are never going to roll on a three when he's decreed a four. His decree will never, ever, ever be thwarted. Now, this raises the question, okay, uh, uh, what are the decrees of God? He, you say he, he decrees and executes his decree. That's what providence is. Well, what are the decrees of God? Well, thankfully, we're not left in the dark to answer this question. The Bible has revealed the decrees of God to us. Our biblical confessions in the history of the church have distilled what the Bible has taught on the matter. For example, Westminster Confession, Westminster Catechism, question 12, what are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise and free and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he has for his own glory, unchangeably foreordained, whatever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. Whatever comes to pass by his providential reign over the universe, that's what we're dealing with. He is unchangeably foreordained, which is to say he's not tweaking it as he goes. You know, that, that's what we do. I try to decree things, but then I'm like, eh, that's not going to work. Let me, you know, oh, I thought I was going to order that, but you guys ran out. Let me order this. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly adjusting. I'm constantly changing in my decrees. His decrees are unchangeably foreordained. Whatever comes to pass, comes to pass by his providential reign. Now, theologians... Theologians have studied the Bible very deeply on the matter, and they've explained that this then breaks out into three doctrinal aspects. They are known as preservation, concurrence, and government. Again, you've got to put your thinking caps on, and do a little theology, you're going to understand the slices of the bread, and then we're going to do some exposition. Three things to have in mind, preservation, concurrence, and government. You will note that the first point on your outline unpacking our text this morning has the word concurrence in it. Concurrence 
is one of the aspects. That's why I'm explaining all this, so that then it makes sense as we're talking about it. I want to, I want to equip you to think deeply about the things of the Lord. Can I say that that's something, by the way, that I love about our church? That we don't shy away from teaching God's Word or, or doctrine and the rest. Uh, we live in an age of entertainment culture where uh, people are amusing themselves to death and where many churches don't do what we're doing here. You're, you're, you're not going to get this in, in many places. You're going to get the TED Talk, a couple you know, one-liners and whatever, and you'll leave feeling good about yourself and you won't know why and you won't learn anything. I'm, I'm so thankful to be a part of this church where we take a value in knowing the things of the Lord, but we don't stop at knowing. We want to get it into wisdom and get it into our hearts. So a little knowledge here, preservation, concurrence, and government. Now, biblically, these three categories, they're all dealing with how God is in control. So it's good to have these distinctions in mind. There's, there's preserving and concurring, and there's government. And biblically, these categories are linked to Romans chapter 11, verse 36, where we have the language of from him, through him, to him, Romans 11, 36. As theologian John Frame notes that from him, that's his preserving. Through him, that's his concurrence. To him, that's his governing of all things. Really quickly, really quickly, let's break it down. Preservation, the first one. Preservation is a term to describe that God is keeping everything that exists in existence. He is maintaining all of the material realm. He is sustaining all of the spiritual sphere. All matter subatomic particles, molecules, animals, humans, nations, planets, galaxies. He's, 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 he's over all of that, okay? And, and all of the spiritual sphere, souls, angels, demons, forces, principality, he's over all that. He's, he's preserving all of that, which is to say that it all has life from him, preservation. It all has life from him. Now, God alone has life in himself. His life in himself. We worship a God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons, and in them, the Father, Son, and Spirit is life. Not to mention love. But this life and this love, it's intrinsic in God's nature. He's not pulling it from anywhere else, you see. He just, has, he just is life. So God never needs to charge his batteries. He never needs to fill his tank. He never needs to take a power nap. And that said... It's not the nap that keeps us going. It's not the gas in the car that keeps it going. It's not the USB port that keeps the cell phone going. All of it is ultimately the preservation of God. Because you've all had that experience of plugging your phone into the charger and it doesn't work, right? You've all had the experience of, hey, I got gas and it still doesn't go, right? All of it is under the control of God. Preservation. Concurrence. Let's, let's come back to concurrence and go to government really quick. Now, government, we don't mean our government. We don't mean the man, Biden, Trump, whoever, whatever. That's not what we're talking about. By government and theology, we're talking about sovereign governing. God is governing everything, which is to say that he is directing everything to fulfill his purposes as the governor of creation. Nothing slips out of his hand. He never drops a tool. He never forgets a file. He never shows up late. He never misses an email. Never. He governs it. Okay, so that's preservation, that's government. Let's come to concurrence. What's that? What's concurrence? Well, concurrence is used to describe how God cooperates with created things and creatures in their, in their movements and moments and decisions to direct the outcome that he has foreordained. 
So now you have these categories. You've got a little theology under your belt. Let's, let's, come, let's come to God's concurrence. Let's confess that it's spot on. Proverbs 16, we read about the actions of people in the text. The text says that God is in control. That, that God's concurring. He's concurring the things that are taking place in our life. Now, in technical theological Latin, concurris divinus is, is used as Dr. Lewis Burkhoff, the great theologian, defines as the cooperation of divine power with all subordinate powers according to the pre-established laws of their operation, causing them to act and to act precisely as they do. This is the word that we use when we're talking about the antinomy of human actions and the providence of God. They concur. If God's in control, I, I think I have a free will. How does, that, how does that work out? Can I do something God doesn't, you know, how does that work out? They concur. That's the language that we use. It's the language that the Bible surfaces for us. The Bible sees an agreement in the way that we use our freedom and the way that God is actually in control of everything. This doctrine causes our minds to race. As we seek to mathematically quantify, like, well, then what does that mean? Did God, like, ordain for me to hit my head right now? Did he ordain for me to hit my head again? You know, what, what does that mean? I want to mathematically quantify how my free will works and precisely pin down how man is responsible for my, action, for my, for my actions and you're responsible for your actions. If ultimately everything is in God's control, hey, God, stop doing that. It's getting annoying, right? Now, theologian J.I. Packer has very wisely written on the question that I am sort of alluding to here with regard to God's control and our responsibility. God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught side by side in the same Bible. Sometimes, indeed, even in the same text, it follows that they must be held together and not played off against one another. Man is responsible as a moral agent, though he is also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality, and man's responsibility is a reality too. Now, speaking of our responsibilities, this is where we get, we move from the theology of the sandwich here about God being in control, and we take this category of concurring, and now we step into the middle of the sandwich. This is where Proverbs gets really practical. Proverbs proclaims providence, so we've got to do some theology and put our thinking caps on. But then now, now it gets really practical. Now we want to open our hearts and say, okay, Lord, do business in me. Do, do your thing in me. The Lord has made everything, verse 4. Look at verse 4. The Lord has made everything for, his, for its own purpose. So Proverbs starts getting really practical here and telling you, look, like God's in control, but look, you have a purpose. Your life is not random. Today is not random. Our service being inside this week and not some other week of the past or another week inside of the future, none of, that's not random. He has a purpose in it. Even if we as leaders in the church and volunteers and staff, if we were too slow and maybe we should have been in last week or the week before or the month before or we're too fast and maybe we shouldn't be in here today, even, even if we didn't perfectly weather the storm of, of Rona, look, all of this is in God's control. Our plans, our decisions are concurring. They're concurring with him. We're concurring, not deterring. We can't deter God. Look at verse 1 and verse 9. It talks about our plans. The plans of the heart belong to a man, verse 1. Look at verse 9. The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Verse 1 and verse 9, if you have your Bibles, you can circle it. You have the plans of the heart. 
And you have the mind, uh, the mind of man's plans. Plans in the heart and plans in the head. Now, we all drum up things in our hearts that we, we want to do. We get emotional about stuff. This is what I want to do. We, dr- we drum up things in our minds that we want to do. We map it out. We plan it out. We think that we're in control, but we're, 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 we're not in control. But God is using our free will to accomplish his will. And in submission to that, we're serving a purpose. Now, this raises a question for us. You go, well, what about evil? Like, what about bad stuff that happens? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm married to someone who's mean, or my boss did this to me, or I got stabbed. I don't know. You know, just look at the news. They're bombing people. Like, are you saying that God's throwing those missiles and stabbing people? Is God the author of evil? No. No. God is holy. Evil is contrary to his holy nature. God is not the author of evil any more than God can draw a square circle or draw a two-horned unicorn. You can't draw a two-horned unicorn. It's a unicorn. It's got one horn. You can't draw a two-horned unicorn. That's illogical. You can't do that which is illogical any more than because God is true in his nature. He can't do what is illogical. And because God is pure and holy in his nature, he can't do evil. God can't lie. God doesn't do evil. Now, in the case of evil, God is eternally decreed to permit or to allow us to do evil things. Evil itself actually turns out not to be a thing. God didn't create evil. Evil was like a donut hole. It's the absence of a thing. There's no hole. It's just the absence of the delicious, doughy goodness that is a donut. And why they put the hole there, I don't know. They're just saving money and making more donuts. But it's the absence of a thing. Evil is the absence of a thing. Good. God has made good. And he has providentially decreed to allow free creatures to forsake the good in some instances in his creation. So God is permitting things in his concurrence. You have those categories. He's permitting in his concurrence certain things. He is giving man what man wants, and in his mercy, he's actually protecting us through his controlling power of the effects of the things that we want. Theologian William Shedd explains that the permissive decree is a decree not to hinder the sinful self-determination of the finite will and to regulate and control the result of the sinful self-determination. So God lets us do bad things sometimes. And God protects us from those bad things because he's good. But we can't shake our fist at him for anything that has taken place. No matter what happens in this life then, we can rest assured that God is concurring and governing, right, and, and giving, giving, giving life to in his providence. Even evil, evil is not escaping his concurrence. As Joseph told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as they did him dirty and ruined his childhood, as for you, you, your free will and choices, you meant this as evil for me. But in God's concurrence, God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people and keep them alive. You did me dirty. You thought you were in control of that. No, God was using it for a bigger thing. In my life, I've had people do horrible things to me. I've had people say horrible things about me. I've been abused by family. I've been beaten by strangers. I've been stabbed by friends and more. If I did not believe that God was in control, concurring it all, I wouldn't survive. I would collapse in despair. 
I would give up. I would tap out. I would run. I would have no confidence because I know I can't control things. I see things in my life fall apart all the time. Uh, not just in my personal life, but the nations of the world. He's in control of it all. Which brings us to the next point on our outline. Government is controlled by the sovereign. Now, verses, we're in the sandwich part. We're, we're in the, the middle of the sandwich part here. Verses 10 through 15, if you look at that, it's, this section of the text is directed at the government. In fact, the, the whole book of, of Proverbs is really a government text. Historically, the book of Proverbs was used as a training manual, as I said in the introduction, for kings and priests and public servants. This is sort of the, you know, uh, this, is, this is your training manual when you get hired. This is, this is the, the, what you go to in terms of living in the days of Israel. This was to guide the leadership. They needed to know biblical truth so that they could lead the government well. And what they needed to know here in this text is teaching you is that the government is ordained by God. God's in control of government. Those powers that you think are kind of the ultimate just in terms of man, God stands over them. It's just as we read in the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, everyone who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, granted, this doesn't give the government free reign to be tyrants, in particular, to ask God's people to disobey God. As the great apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the government tried to pull a fast one on him and command him to do something against the command of the Lord, Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. And here the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 isn't giving a blank check to our government to ask God's people to disobey God. This isn't a green light on ungodliness. Paul goes on to speak actually about wrath that comes on evil to check all powers, those above and those below. Similarly, here in Proverbs chapter 16, he speaks about the rulers, the government being in control, but he also warns the rulers. Look at verse 10. A divine decision is in the lips of a king. His mouth should not err in judgment. Verse 11, a just balance in the scales, they belong to the Lord. All the weights of his bag are his concern. The point is that the Lord demands accurate scales. The language is, uh, is, is literally just, mishpat. It means justice, justice in society, mishpat. Uh, of, of course, the term social justice today has gotten so unlo uh, unloaded, but he's dealing with mishpat, that's justice. The kings and those in charge are supposed to be bringing mishpat to society. Pelek is the word for balance. Mozen is the word for scales. You're supposed to have this mishpat, pelek, mozen, this, this righteousness that brings order to society and that, that, that stands against evil powers. Verse 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. Righteousness and justice are to be the characteristics of, of the king. Now keep in mind that this text was written specifically for Israel, not a secular democracy. This was written for a theocracy. The earthly king was ordained by God, and the earthly king, like Solomon, who's author of the text, is to represent the heavenly king. Just as the earthly temple is to represent the heavenly temple, the earthly king over the theocracy of Israel was to represent the heavenly king. Now, Psalm 89 verse 14 speaks of God like an earthly king, and God has righteousness and justice. That's the foundation of his throne, the text says. And here in Proverbs chapter 16, 
16, we likewise see that the king's throne is to be built on justice and righteousness. In this respect, the earthly king is supposed to be reflecting a, a, a heavenly king. That's what a king's supposed to be. And what is a citizen supposed to be? The passage unpacks in verse 14. Look at the text. We read about the wise man who seeks to appease the government, to walk in humble subjection, to, to, to walk humbly before the powers of the day, trusting that God's concurring in them for his will, just as Paul says here in Romans 13. Instead of battling, we are to bless. We are to be peacemakers. 2020, 2021 has been a challenge for the church of Jesus in this regard. We are regularly presented with decisions by governmental powers that we don't like. We are regularly courted by other powers who want to use us for their gain. In some cases, they'll, they'll get us all worked up so we get all angry and they gain, they win. In other cases, they'll get us dialed down and, the, and they'll win because we'll get dialed down and things will happen that maybe we should fight. And in any case, they'll, they'll then get these powers, Will, the bride of Jesus, to fight her body and to fight her head, Christ. And it's a win-win for the powers that want to divide people. And we need to be reminded, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and powers. It's against world forces and darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And the Proverbs here is reminding us, look, God's in control. And you get to concur with him, so you're playing a part in this. But the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. So in faithful obedience, we are honored to concur with his work and be used by him. And oh, the joy of, of, of being used by him. We're reminded that whatever goes on with, with our government, that he has ultimate government over it, and that he's concurring through it, and that, that he's preserving all of this. And so this then should call us to a place of, Humility and, and submission as we walk through crazy times. And it should chin-check governmental powers as they hear God say, your mouth, Mr. Governor, should not err. Your mouth should not err. You better rule in righteousness and justice. And with those commands inside of the text to the governing powers, we're reminded that Israel was waiting for something. Israel needed these instructions to Israel's king because Israel's king was a fallen man. We're reminded, though, of the promise to God, to Solomon's daddy, to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. You remember that text? God told David that he would establish his throne forever, that he would send a seed through David who would sit on the throne and would rule with righteousness and justice in perpetuity. You see, the ancient believers received that promise, and they knew there's one who's going to come through David who will be our Messiah. And at the time this text was given, they didn't get to see it. But brothers and sisters, we're on the other side of the cross. Which leads me to the next point on your outline, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. As we read the text Christocentrically, and we think about the commands that are given to their kings to check their immorality, we are reminded of the promise that has come in Christ, who is the seed of David, who doesn't need instructions about immorality because he's absolutely holy. He is God the Son in the flesh, one with the Father and the Spirit, who has come to live the life that we did not live, to pay a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. The seed of David, the great king, has come, and he weighs all men in his balance. He weighs all men in his scales. We, we read the text and we think of them receiving that word and we think of being on this side and the seed of David coming and the king coming to the people. 
And we're reminded that none of us are unscathed from the judgment of the text. Look at verse 2 in Proverbs 16. All the ways of men are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Look at verse 5. Everyone's proud in heart. Abomination to the Lord. He will not go unpunished. That's scary. That's scary. I can, I, I can pull a fast one. I can, I, can, I can put on appearances. But I can't do it with God. His judgment is promised on my head. The Lord's weights and His scales are perfect. They're perfect. He doesn't grade on a scale. They're perfect. And what is expected of us in His perfect scales? Nothing other than perfection. That's how law works. Don't kill people. That's a law. If you kill someone, you can't stand before the judge and say, well, Your Honor, think about all the people I haven't killed. My goodness, far outweighs my badness. It was just the one person. And I mean, think of all the people I've wanted to kill, but I haven't. I mean, it was just that one time. Right? And yet, you hear that from people when you bring up, hey, you've sinned, you need a savior. Oh, who are you to judge me? I'm a good person. I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not Hitler. It's like, well, those are really interesting comparisons, right? You're comparing yourself to some evil person so as to make yourself feel better about yourself. You must compare yourself to the perfection of his scales, his balances, his justice. You must realize that the law presumes obedience. You're not rewarded for not killing people. Oh, that's great, you didn't kill people today. You're such a good person. No, you're not rewarded for doing what you ought to do. But when you do what you ought not to do, you come under the penalty of it. And the penalty of rebelling against the giver of life is the taking back of life. And so 10 out of 10 people die because 10 out of 10 people sin. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. Falling short of his perfect standard brings death. Verse 25 in the text, the way of death. And so the text then, it, 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 scare, it, it should scare you as you're reading it because you realize, whoa, this text is coming at me fast. This text is going to take my head off. But here's the hope in the text, verse 6. Loving kindness and truth Iniquity is atoned for, verse 6. Iniquity is atoned for. Now again, we're this side of the cross. We're on this side of the cross. And so we can look at the text and go, wow, there are those commands to the kings who were fallen, but there's a king who has come who is perfect. And there, there's, there's atonement language here in the text. And we think about Christ who we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We, we, we think about how he took the penalty of death upon himself and becoming a man, and he died in our place, and he atoned for us. The loving kindness and truth, iniquity atoned for. He's atoned for that. So uh, while we come today and we say, wow, the Lord sees our hearts, the Lord's going to judge us, that means we're in trouble. We can run to Jesus, our atonement, who is truth and loving kindness in the flesh, and be set free by him. As well, Proverbs are about wisdom. I'd be remiss if I didn't i show you this in terms of the New Testament reading of Proverbs. In the New Testament, the New Testament lifts up Jesus as the proverb, as wisdom. So, for example, look at this text with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. The New Testament, the wisdom that we see that's like, hey, you should live wisely, 
you should live wisely, Proverbs, the New Testament shows Jesus as the incarnation of that wisdom. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, that their hearts may be encouraged, having knit together in love and attaining all wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ, in whom all hidden treasures of wisdom are found. So we, we, we come to him. We come to him and we say, Lord, save us. Lord, forgive us. And those of you who have done that, those of you who have confessed your sin and come to him, You've been saved by Him. And it wasn't your doing. He was in control even of that. Look at John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said that all the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's concurrence. People are coming, and He's saying, yeah, you're coming because you were given to me of the Father. So you see the tension of the will and the providence of God. You see that? in our salvation, in our sanctification, as he's at work in our hearts, hopefully even now stirring stuff inside of us. We read in Philippians, for example, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, My beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like I'm responsible to do that. I've got to work it out. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Concurrence. Concurrence. So we then move from his concurrence into the communal life that the text surfaces in Proverbs chapter 16. We read of this, uh, these, these verses here that are about how we treat one another. The Lord wants us to see the grace that is in Christ, the government that's controlled by him, his concurrence, it's, it's spot on, and he wants us to see that how, how community works. He, he talks about, look at verse 17, the highway of the upright and departing from evil, Pride and destruction and haughtiness. He, he warns about uh, divisive people, the worthless man, verse 27, who digs up evil while his words are like a scorching fire, a perverse man who spreads strife, a slanderer separating intimate friends. I, I want your community to experience life and flourishing and, and wisdom is what the text is crying out to us. Same language inside of the New Testament, if I could parallel it. On the next slide, if someone will help there, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teachings that you have heard, to turn from them. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord, but their own appetites. And smooth and flattering speech, they deceive hearts of the unsuspecting. Slaves, they run around, they're trying to get their way, they're trying to control, they're trapped by their appetites. They want that comfort that I was talking about, so they want to have that control. This is a proverb that says, don't live that way. Walk in unity, walk in love. Don't try to control people. Don't try to put on appearances. Don't, don't try to manipulate. Don't try to dominate. Just accept and serve and love and trust God. Those are all things that we need to hear after a year like 2020 and 2021. Verse 20 in the text. Give attention to the word, it says. And that is the final point of the outline where we find our confidence for our soul is by heeding the admonition in verse 20 to give attention to the word. We've done that today. We've been in this sucker for an hour. Just giving attention to it. And what it's doing is it's calling us to have confidence in the one who's in control. Confidence comes from a compound, con fide. Fide means faith. 
Con means with. Chili con carne, right? Uh, con with faith. We come in faith. As we are saved, we're saved by faith. Faith is the gift of God that no man may boast. We must continue to walk in faith and say, Lord, I'm looking at my world. I'm looking at things. I'm watching the news. It doesn't seem like you're in control. But I'm looking at your word, and it says you're in control. And then your confidence comes as you get your eyes off all this and you get your eyes into this. And as you get your eyes into this, you read in verse 32, right? Slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than the one who captures the city. It's about ruling my spirit, not other people's spirits. I can't control how other people act. I can't control how I react. I can't control what someone thinks of this or that or me. But I can control what I choose to do with that. Verse 17 encourages us to depart from evil, to walk away. Verse 3 encourages us to commit our works to the Lord. Trust God. He's at work. Obey God. Obey God. Submit to His Word. Walk in the Spirit. And everything's going to be all right. The lot is cast into the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. And of course, the greatest decision that we celebrate as we gather today is the decision that God made before the foundations of the world, which was our beginning scripture read in Ephesians chapter 1. The decision and the decree of God to save a people unto himself. And the greater decision that he would provide, the Father would, in the sacrifice of the Son, atonement for us. We come with our communion cups, and we think of the sacrifice of Christ which is the penultimate picture of God's concurrence and control. You see, we have this verse about shaking the dice and it rolls the way it's supposed to be. The cross of Calvary is the way it was supposed to be. Look at Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put them to death. Which is it? Predetermined plan, God's in control, you nailed him to the cross. You're responsible for this, but he ordained it. Which is it? You see the tension. Verse 24, God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, making it impossible to be held in his power. And he's the firstfruits of that which is to come. See the concurrence language. As you hold the picture of the bread, as you have this verse before you, speaks of his body being nailed to a cross. And here you have a picture of his body. And you have the promise that, that, that the grave couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. And you've got this language that he's in control of it all. Let's eat. Let's come. Say, Lord, you are, you are in control of the cross. Certainly in control of us. As we eat the bread and we think of the one who was nailed to the cross, as we see the text before us and, and how it comes for us and shows us we stand condemned, as we have the other half of the ordinance of communion before us, a cup that pictures his blood, we are reminded that his blood would be on our hands. We would stand in the sweep of Acts chapter 2 in its judgment, but by his grace he chose to pardon us so that his blood is not on our hands, it's in our hearts, and it has washed us. We read in Romans chapter 9, 
I have mercy on whom I have mercy, God says. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. This, this cup pictures the blood of the one who has washed us. It also pictures the providence that he was in control of it. The cross didn't happen on accident. He came on purpose. And he was coming to rescue his people. When he hung on that cross, he was atoning for you and for me, for those who are in him. Let's drink this cup and give thanks. Now, I said in the beginning that knowledge is knowing what, and wisdom is knowing how, and when, when to speak, how to speak, is different from knowing what. Knowledge versus wisdom. I said at the beginning that I, I want to give you some stuff in your head, some knowledge, but I want it to flesh out into wisdom. So we've learned a lot of theological terms this morning and concepts, and you've, you've had the word and some practical things about relationships and life and trust and the rest but I hope that it moves from the mind in, into the heart. It has been said that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put that in a fruit salad. <laughs> and so I, I pray that having feasted on the word and having had communion, and now we're going to have a couple of songs that as we, as we sing and as we cry out to him, that God's going to take this word about his control and and, and concurrence, and all of this, and, and he's going to do something in us. And this week's going to be different from last week. And we'll come back next Sunday, and it's going to get better. And it's just going to keep getting better. And we're just going to keep going. Man, God's in control. Isn't he good? And look at this sweet church that he's given us. And he's at work in us. Praise be to God. Let's, let's worship him. Worship team, if you'd come. Let me, let me pray as they come up, and let's, let's sing, and let's give all praise and honor to him. Lord, we thank you that you are in control. And Lord, we confess that in our arrogance, we would like to be in control. And what a foolish thing that I would like to be in control instead of having you, the one who knows all things, uh, be in control. Lord, I pray that you would move this uh, reality, this proposition that you're in control into our lives practically. Transform us. Give us more love and more mercy. We read in, in Romans just a moment ago that, that it's your mercy that has saved us. That, that, that you did what you did with the Pharaoh so that your name would go among the nations. And Lord, you did what you did with us in saving us that we would go among the nations. So Lord, mobilize us this day to be your mouthpiece to the nations, we pray. Work in our hearts now to remove anything that is stopping us from this mission and discipleship, Lord, that we could be used by you. All glory and honor belongs to you, O Lord. Receive these songs of worship. In the name of Jesus, amen.